Last week, I forgot where I was. I came up here and read from the New King James Version, which is my translation of choice. I forgot that I was in Hawaii, and I didn't read from the ESV and from the Pew Bible that you have in front of you. My goodness. Well, I won't make that mistake again. We have been overwhelmed, my wife and my children, by your hospitality, your love. My wife is, was a florist, and she received a few lays, and we learned about new flowers this week. The pikake and the puakini kini. I think I said that right. Uh, we received these lays. They were beautifully made with precision and care. And as I was looking at each of these flowers in the whole lay, I thought to myself, this is exactly how I need to preach the Bible, with great precision and with great care. So thank you, Hawaii Kai, for your hospitality and for your love. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And as you're turning there, an outline for this morning. We return to the issue of the angels. We return to the issue of the angels first, and we'll do it rather quickly. And then to the creation. Last week I introduced you to the two-part outline, creator-creation. So the second point is the creation. And then finally, this whole business of head coverings. This business of head coverings. We will apply this passage once we understand in depth what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So just an outline for you, a roadmap as we move through this passage. First the angels, then the creation, and lastly this business of the head coverings. Well, let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 2 and read down to verse 16. Follow along in the Word of God. This is on page 958, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a, man ought, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer. True living God, we have prepared our hearts with song. 
and our souls are ready now to receive your word. Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. Give us ears to hear, minds that understand, and hearts that are soft and ready to respond. Implant the eternal truth of your word down deep into our hearts, and by the power of your spirit, cause it to bear much fruit. We offer this prayer to you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of manhood, of servant headship. He loved and loves his bride. He gave himself for her, dying on a cross because he loves her. Dying on a cross and, and laying down his life as a substitute for her. He who is without sin took upon himself her sin so that she, so that we, that all who look to him, that all who put their trust in his headship would be forgiven and redeemed. He gave himself for her to cleanse and, and to sanctify and to wash her that she might be counted righteous in him. He died on a cross because he loves her, and he rose from the grave because he loves her. Love is the primary attribute of headship. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of that loving headship. Friends, if you have come here today and you don't know this love, it is our prayer that you would come to Christ to repent and, and turn away from sin and turn to Jesus Christ as your heavenly husband, as your loving head and savior. Well, last week, I introduced two foundational doctrines that establish the roles of, of men and women in society at large, in the home, in the family, and as we read in the church. Now, the first foundational doctrine is the doctrine of God. Paul says in verse 3, if you look down at your text, the head of Christ is God. In the plan of salvation, the Christ submits to God. His submission to the headship of his Father is indicative of God's eternal plan. And so in the economy of the Trinity, there is headship, there is order, and there is authority. And this sets a pattern for society, for the home, in the family, and certainly in God's church, among God's people. Now, this order is beautiful, and it is glorious wherever it is manifested because it reflects the person of God. And this beauty is especially manifest among the sexes, among men and women. Now, we didn't get to our second point last week, if you remember. First, the creator, but secondly, the creation. Creation reflects the creator. Built into the creation is this beautiful order and this authority. It is beautiful and glorious. A beautiful complementarity where differences between the sexes only highlight interdependence, unity, and mutuality. Instead of, instead of competition and superiority, inferiority, or inequality. Now, if the differences among men and women lead to inequality and disunity, then you can be sure that disorder and chaos will result in society, in the home, in the family, and in the church, which is exactly what was happening in Corinth. 
thus causing all kinds of issues in the church to the point where, as we read in verse 10, even the angels took notice. So let's look at the angels. And what does Paul mean by this little phrase in verse 10, because of the angels? And we'll do it rather quickly. Now, there are multiple views here as to what this reference means. Now, I'm not dogmatic about my view, and I'm not going to lay out all of the views. You can look them up if you like. I am convinced that the angels are orderly beings. They are made to operate in rank and in order. As you know, there are no gender distinctions among the angels. In other words, no boy angels, no girl angels, just angels. And as God's servants, they live out their existence to serve God. And thus, they are tasked with maintaining the order of the creation. And they certainly, they certainly don't like seeing disarray in God's church. The order and orderliness of heaven should be reflected in the order of God's church among his people. So you can imagine You can imagine how perplexed the angels were to see disorder in Corinth among men and women. And not only disorder among the genders, but chaos in communion if you go on to read verse 17. And then you go into chapter 12 and chaos with reference to the spiritual gifts. There's a prophet who prophesies in stand-up, but he's interrupted by another prophet who has another message only to be interrupted by a tongue speaker and the interpreter. And there was just chaos in the public worship service. My goodness. And Paul says, if you look forward in chapter 14, verse 23, Paul says, if someone walks into the madness of your worship service, they're going to think you've all lost your mind, that you're off your rocker. And then he says in chapter 14, toward the end of the section, he says in verse 33, he says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as is in all the churches of the saints. So Paul is saying this, don't upset the angels. They, they have A-type personalities. They are very straight-laced, and you don't want to upset them. And apparently, blurring the lines among the sexes, uh, among men and women, blurred the creation order and upset the angels. Well, that's my view. We return then to the creation, to the order that is taught in the creation. Look down at your text in verse 7. And we'll backtrack as we lay down this creation principle. Paul writes this, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. And Paul is here, he is bringing us back to Genesis chapter 2. He is highlighting the creation order. Now, in the creation of the image bearers, you remember, man was created first, before woman. He was made from the dust. Man is a pile of dirt. He is dusty, if you will. And then she was made, not from the dust, but from him, from his side, not from his head to be above him, not from his feet to be below him, but from his side to be equal with him, to be loved and cherished by him. She was made, as you remember, to help him. As we said last week, 
because he needs help. Now, Paul is obviously not saying that one is made in the image of God and the other isn't. He's not saying that. Otherwise, he'd be contradicting Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Both bear the image of God. That goes without saying. But Paul's point here in the order of creation is that God raised Adam from the dust. But she was made from him. She was made second for her husband to be and to reflect something of the goodness and glory of her husband. She is not dusty. She is not dirty, if you will, but reflects the glory of the man from whence she came. That much is clear in what Paul has said. So this is what Paul means. He is not saying that one is glorious and that one isn't. No, absolutely not. He is simply saying that the order of the creation is seen in his creation and then in her creation. Each testifies of how God created. Each reflects what God did in how he specifically created the man and in how he specifically created the woman. She was made to help, which presupposes something about the other one. If she was made to help, that means that someone needed help. And as is often the case when someone helps us, that helper is competent and qualified. Now, I'm not saying that women are smarter or more competent or better than men generally. I'm definitely not a feminist. But some of our wives, some of our wives, this just happens to be true with some of our wives in many cases. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands. Thank you. I see that hand, brother. Thank you. I see that hand. Now, for people who don't believe in the creation, who don't believe in the order of creation, being made first or second is irrelevant and not applicable. But this is not irrelevant for Paul, and it's certainly not irrelevant for us. We understand that this creation order was ordained by God with the intended purpose of establishing order and authority, what we call biblical headship. He was made first to serve as head, servant headship. She was made second to serve as his help. In other words, each is for the other and all for God. In a marriage, each for the other and all for God. That's also the title of probably the best book I've read on marriage. I encourage you to look it up and to buy it and read it together. Each for the other and all for God. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what we affirm. He was made first to serve as head, servant headship. She was made second to serve as his help. And as Paul goes on, look at verses 11 and 12. He goes on to teach, it's an important word, he goes on to teach interdependence interdependence, the interdependence of men and women, he says, in the Lord. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. 
As Christians, above all people, we who understand the creation, we understand the order of creation and what it teaches. It teaches male headship. But we also understand that creation teaches interdependence. The head and the helper are interdependent. They make a perfect team. The helper helping the one who needs help. Because guess what? Being head is it's not an easy job. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman of man, and all is from God. And this example of interdependence, this example and what Paul is referring to is substantiated not only by the initial creation, he was made first, she was made second, but it's also substantiated by continuing procreation. Look at verse 12. Again, he says, For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of women. Beloved, the first man, Adam, he recognized this truth. And that's why he names his wife in Genesis 3 verse 20, he names her Hava or Eve. And then the text says, Moses says, because she would be the mother of all of the living. And so we see dependence and interdependence. That's what Scripture teaches. It does not teach independence. Scripture teaches that we're different but complementing. Not opposing but complementing. Equal and yet beautifully distinct. Equal but not egalitarian. Equal but not absolute sameness. Equal in worth, equal in personhood and, and value, equal, interdependent, different, and complementing, equal but distinct and unique, each fulfilling their God-given role, one as help and the other as head. And this God-given order, this God-given distinction should be, well, it should be celebrated, it should be honored and maintained in society in the home, with a family, and in the church. And if not, if not, then we're going to make a gang of very dangerous angels upset. Now, you might have asked yourself, well, my boss is a woman, and so what do I do? Let me help you. Submit to your boss. And you're thinking, well, I, I, I own a business. I'm a woman. I'm a CEO. Does this mean that, that I, I shouldn't take that position? No, absolutely not. God bless you in that position and be excellent in that position. Do those things and be a CEO like a woman would be a CEO. Don't try to be a man about it. And likewise with brothers in the same way. Let me make this really practical. Dads, don't try to be mom. Impossible. She does 10 million things that you don't even know and can't do. And so often in my household, I ask my wife, how do I do this? Luther said this, I submit to two people, Martin Luther, the reformer. He said, I submit to the Holy Spirit and to Katya, my wife. And moms, don't try to be dads. Be what God made you to be to the best of your ability. And that comes with challenges in certain families. But be what you are and be what you're made to be. Even more practically, if you have siblings, brothers, don't try to be a sister. 
And sisters, don't try to be brothers. Be a brother. How God made you. And sisters, be a sister the way God made you. Okay, I feel comfortable now to talk about this whole business of head coverings and how it applies today. Now, perhaps the ladies in Corinth, perhaps they were saying, well, I'm free in Christ now. I can do whatever. Perhaps they said, Paul, we read Galatians 3, and we understand that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. And so, in that case, I am gender non-conforming, as they say today, or whatever it is they believe. I don't have to dress according to cultural standards. I can wear my hair how I want and please. I am free in Christ. And Paul is saying, no, you can't act like that. You're not at liberty to violate God's divine order of creation in society, in the home, and here in the church. These are not cultural constructs, but rooted in the person of God and in the order of creation. These are timeless principles. Timeless principles that that should determine culture, you understand, and set the boundaries. These timeless truths cannot be discarded or changed. So we can go around trying to fit in with a God-denying, creation-denying culture, or we can hold fast to God's Word and stand on the solid rock of timeless truth. How applicable is this truth to, to my junior high and high school students in here today. Where, where in the world, if you're a student in general, they're trying to deny these beautiful distinctions. Now, what does all of this mean? Does this mean that men can't wear hats? That, that women have to wear hats? Or coverings? Or some say they need to wear a veil or perhaps a bonnet of some sort? Does this mean that men can't have long hair? I mean, we're in Hawaii after all. Manness is defined by long hair. I don't know if you know who Maui is. Does this mean that women have, they have to have long hair? And how long is long? And how short is too short then? Now, is Paul talking about actual head coverings or a woman's hair as the covering? What is going on here? Now, all of these are pertinent questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you step by step through what I believe is going on in the church at Corinth. We're going to do the cultural things in Corinth first. And as we go, I will point out and distinguish the timeless principles from the cultural expressions. So first, again, we're going to look at cultural things, and then we're going to transition to timeless principles. And finally, we'll get to how all of this applies today. So first, a few cultural things. Now, in ancient Greek and Jewish culture, very short hair or a woman with a shaved head, this was a symbol of ostracization, of public shame, of being separated from the community. Shorn hair was a punishment. It was a symbol of separation from a community. Among the Jews, we know from Leviticus, that a shaved head was a symbol of uncleanness and separation from a community. Now, in Corinth, it was a prostitute who was identified by her short, free-flowing hair, while a dignified and a virtuous woman 
tied up her long hair and wore a head covering or a veil or, as I mentioned, a bonnet of some sort. Actually, I'm not sure what exactly this head covering was. I'm not certain. Now, if you look at statues from the first century period, you will see that dignified women wore their hair up, and they're often covered in some form. So, let's take a step back here. Let's just agree that short, free-flowing hair or tying your hair up in a bun or, let's say, letting it down, this is not a symbol of virtue or shame today. This is not a symbol of promiscuity. Listen, we can debate that all you want, but it's just not, and so we're not going to go there. Furthermore, for a man to wear a hat or a turban or a yarmulke or a headscarf, this is not a symbol of subservience. This is not a dishonor to Christ, who is the head of every man. Look at verse 7. Wearing a hat is not a dishonor to God. But here's the point. In first century Corinth, just as is true today, women adorned themselves in a certain way, in a way that was distinct from men. Both, both culture and nature itself teach us this very truth throughout the generations across cultures. Culture and nature itself teach that men and women are not the same. And so they must not try to look the same. You don't believe me? Go to the beach. They look different. They're different swimsuits. They're not the same. And if culture, our culture, if our culture starts teaching androgyny, if our culture tries to eliminate the distinctions the distinctions that are written into the creation that nature itself teaches according to verse 14, then we should not do as the culture does. This is why Paul was so concerned about head coverings and about hairdos, if you will, because they were a telltale sign in the first century of masculinity and femininity. For example... Perhaps you walked into the worship service and you're waiting, you see the countdown clock going, and you're waiting for worship and the sermon to start, and, and you see a strange lady sitting on the front row here, and uh, you're looking, and this lady turns around and she has a beard on, and you're like, that's Pastor Eric. <laughs> and he is about to ascend the pulpit and prophesy, if you will, and pray with heels on and a dress, and makeup, and his Bibles in his purse. You would be like, hey, Pastor Dan, this guest speaker, did you approve this? I think he's off of his rocker. Doesn't he know, verse 4, that says that every man praying or prophesying with a dress on dishonors Christ, his head? Doesn't he know that every man praying or prophesying while trying to look like a woman dishonors Christ? That ain't right, you would say. Something is going on with Pastor Eric, and something is up in his household. Something's going on. So why is Paul so concerned about head coverings and hairdos? Well, quite simply, because these were cultural expressions that expressed the natural order of things. Nature, nature teaches it, and, and so should culture. 
The culture should reinforce what nature teaches. But sin, as you well know from Romans chapter 1, sin wants to exchange the natural for the unnatural, to eliminate distinctions and say that masculinity and femininity are nothing but cultural constructs. But we know that that's not true. We know that the beautiful differences and unique distinctions between men and women, their unique roles in society, in the home, and in the church, these highlight the person of God and the work of His creation. And they highlight the intrinsic dignity of men made in God's image and women made in God's image. Let us make man, God said, in our image and likeness, male and female, he created them. So, is Paul talking about hairdos or head coverings? Which one? Well, both. He's talking about both. And we could debate exactly what kind of covering he's talking about and, and what kind of hairdos are off limits. How long is too long? How short is too short? We could debate all of these things. But what's clear is that Paul wants men and women in Corinth to wear, well, he wants men to look like men, and he wants women to wear a head covering. And he wants men and women to wear their hair, which God gave them, to express and highlight their masculinity and femininity, to wear their hair in a way that was respectable, and the women not as a shamed Corinthian woman might, but as was becoming of a Christian woman. And all this because this head covering and hairstyle was reflective of the role relationships between men and women. They symbolized something. They reflected an order. So for a man to wear a head covering or for a woman not to brought dishonor and confusion. By this covering, you see, a woman was expressing her belief and her trust in her creator and in the order of his creation. She was fulfilling her role in the order of creation. Brothers and sisters, this should be our aim. This should be our aim as we consider and live out our masculinity and femininity today. Our aim should be to express our trust in our Creator and in the order of His creation. If a woman refuses to honor God in this regard, Paul says then, why not just go all out? Just shame herself and just shave it all. And if a man refuses then, well, he dishonors his head and his God. Again, the reason why this is so important in Paul's day was because her head covering was an expression of her acknowledgement of God's way and her willingness to live that out. That's why it was so important. And look at verse 14. Paul says this, Judge for yourself. Does not nature itself teach us to distinguish the sexes? And we'll get to the issue of hair length in just a second because some of my long-haired brothers and my short-haired sisters you're looking a little nervous. But Paul says that even nature itself teaches us to distinguish the sexes. Beloved, we must be very, very careful about anything that obscures or blurs what God intends for the sexes. 
Now, after I preached this sermon at my church, I got an urgent call from a concerned brother, and he said this to me. He said, Pastor, just a few months ago, your hair was long and down to your shoulders. Did you not know this passage? And I was like, brother, I didn't, and that's why I cut it. No, I didn't say that. And I said, of course I knew this passage. Well, he said, how, how could you go on with that hair? Don't you know that it is dishonorable? So what does Paul mean by long? How long is too long? Now, I'm not trying to be a booger about this. Or excuse my long, my once longer hair. I actually personally prefer longish hair to crew cut haircuts, but whatever. <laughs> Paul was not saying that a man could not have long-ish hair. Let me prove this to you. The Nazarite in the Old Testament, you can read it in number six, made a vow, and they were not to cut their hair. It was a symbol of their vow and that they were set apart. Two very manly men in the Old Testament had long hair, Samuel the prophet and Samson. And there's nothing feminine about Samson. And an honorable mention would be Absalom, David's son, who also had a full head of hair. What's more, many believe that Paul actually had longer hair in Corinth. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, where it says that while Paul was in Corinth and he stayed for a little over a year, he didn't cut his hair. But when he left Corinth, apparently there was no supercuts in Corinth. When he left Corinth, he cut his hair. And then the text says in Acts 18, 18, because he made a vow. So I'm not trying to justify my longer hair, but I'm just saying that Paul is not trying to debate about how long is too long. I believe he is simply teaching that men should look like men and that women like women. And so a brother with longer hair should not wear his hair like a woman would. And a sister with shorter hair should not be wearing it like a man would. Simply put, men don't be looking like women. And women... Don't be looking like men. Boys, boys are not supposed to look like or act like girls. And girls are not supposed to look like and act like boys. And the way this was expressed in Corinth was in the issue of what was worn on your head. Hair and head coverings, these indicated something. And that's why it was so important. That said, what's in your head is more important than what's on your head. We need to understand this truth. Now, how do we teach this? How do we teach this? How do we apply this today? Should we tell women to wear their hair long and to come to church with a head covering? Well, no, we'd all be in trouble. I don't believe that's how we should teach this. But we should, we should positively teach that distinctions between men and women should be maintained in a way that reflects the order of creation and the culture. And if the culture tries to erase the distinctions, like our culture is today, then we should reject the culture. 
In fact, in our context, in our day and age, they're trying to eliminate all of these distinctions. They tell us that these distinctions are social constructs used by a patriarchal society to oppress women. Now, it can be as benign as, as changing the way we use pronouns to as drastic as a surgical operation, in which case we reject the culture. The culture that tries to eliminate the beautiful and God-ordained differences between men and women. Far from denying these differences, we celebrate them. Brothers and sisters, as believers in God and as believers in the creation, a Christian man should never put himself in a situation where he is being confused for a woman. And a Christian woman should never put herself into a situation where she would be confused for a man. Where such signs are lacking in a culture, we should be bold to maintain the distinctions. In Corinth, head coverings and the absence of them sent a message. And so, you would go to an evening service at Corinth, let's say, and you see Brother John, and he has his Sunday dress on with a shawl and a head covering. And then you see Sister Jane, and, and she has a clean fade, suit and tie on, head uncovered. And you're thinking, what's up with Jane and John? What happened? Don't they believe that God made them different? You see, heads, head covering said something in that culture in Corinth. Now, all of this discussion about head coverings and hair is profoundly practical. Not because we're getting caught up in what's, with what's on our head. It's all profoundly practical because we know that this discussion has to do with what's going on in our head with reference to masculinity and femininity. Our culture opposes what Scripture clearly teaches. They have denied the Creator, and they have denied His creation. And that is clearly seen in their denial of biological sex and gender. Despite their opposition, we follow God. We follow the pattern that God established at creation. We should dress our children in a way that reflects what we believe. We should teach our boys to be men. And we should teach our women, our girls, to be women. Masculine women don't like to be helpers. And feminine men don't exercise servant headship. Beloved, I know that this sounds old school and traditional. Like, like it doesn't fit in, in 21st century. Listen, this doesn't fit Aloha culture, does it? But friends, we are always going to seem outmoded and culturally ignorant. Always. But listen, the maker's ways are perfect. And they don't need to be updated or revised or culturally appropriated. Look at verse 16 and we'll end here. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. Let's pray together. Merciful God, we come before you in confession and repentance. We live our lives and think that our relationship with you is on our terms. It is not. You are God and we are not. 
You are holy and righteous, good and true, loving and all-powerful, and we are not. We confess that we're sinful, self-centered, proud, willful creatures. Sin has affected our perception of reality. We think that we're in control and we're not. We think that we rule and reign in our own little made-up kingdoms, and we have the audacity to make you second class and second best in our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. We see the evil of this attitude and this disposition. Forgive us and cleanse us from secret faults. Search us and know us, examine us, try us, root out any evil way and lead us in the way everlasting. Now as we respond with songs to Jesus, receive our worship. We offer it to you in Jesus' name who is one with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, amen.